All right, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7, if you're not already there. We're looking at just a few verses, uh, verses 18 through 22, but they are, they're really packed. They really reach into the fullness of Scripture. The writer says in verse 18, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. I love it when when scripture falls into an outline. It just falls into its natural components and we're we're given it. Uh, Quite a few English translations in verses 18 and 19 have on the one hand and on the other hand. That is the interpretation of an idiom in the Greek text. And so there are a couple of translations that don't have on the one hand, on the other hand. And uh, they, they give the content just fine, which is, which is great. But I really like the fact that we've got this before and after picture. We have on the one hand, we have on the other hand. Now, on that first hand, in verse 18 and the first part of verse 19, there is a setting aside of the former commandment. That former commandment is the law of God, the law of Moses. Setting aside doesn't mean that that the commandment is destroyed or broken. doesn't mean that it's thrown out. The the sense of this word is that it's officially canceled, that it is no longer recognized as valid. So the Lord came to a place with the old covenant where it had been successfully fulfilled and satisfied, and the the new covenant was instituted. And when the new covenant was instituted, the old covenant was set aside. It was officially canceled, no longer recognized as valid. And it was set aside because it was weak and useless. It could not accomplish what the Lord intends for his people, which is perfection, Christ-likeness, transformation into the image of Jesus. I think you could imagine that for people who were uh, holders of the law, fans of the law, of the tit of the temple of the priesthood of the traditions of the fathers this would have sounded harsh he isn't just saying that the old law was great it was wonderful it was really beautiful but the lord has created something even better and so we're going to go with that he's saying the lord has set aside the old because the old was useless it was weak it couldn't perfect anyone that's going to sound harsh Uh, it's not harsh it's just true and it's clear Lives are on the line. And the scripture doesn't mince words. Those who continued to trust in the law now that it had been set aside, those who continued to trust in those officially canceled traditions and the satisfied religion of their ancestors were going to die in their sins. It was time to turn to the, to the new covenant. It was time to turn to the other hand. What does the Lord intend for the, the elect? What is it that the law failed to do well what the law failed to do is given to us in ezekiel chapter 36 
in what we call the new covenant. This is the, the core of the new covenant. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 25 to 27. The the law couldn't do these things. It couldn't cleanse. It could not give a new heart. It could not give a new spirit. The law could never make anybody, cause any sinner to walk in the statutes of God or observe the ordinance of, of God. It couldn't conform anyone to the holiness and the righteousness of the image of Christ, which is in, in Romans 8.29, God has predestined his people to be conformed to the image of Christ. The law cannot do that. It's powerful when it comes to uh, condemning sin, but it's powerless when it comes to resolving sin. So why was the law given? There are two reasons that the law was given that we see in Scripture. The first is that the law reveals sin. Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There there we see the intention of God, that, that sinners would be justified. Uh, now, justification, I, I guess, uh, I don't think I need it to, to do it with you, but I'll do it with you anyway because it makes me feel better. It's like when you give your kids vegetables. They won't eat them, but it makes you feel better. Um, justification is not the justification people think of in our time. Uh, the, the governor of Virginia has, has faced a couple of serious accusations. The lieutenant governor of Virginia has faced some serious accusations. And there are people out there who are trying to justify them. They're trying to explain why those accusations don't matter. That's not biblical justification. Biblical justification is where God declares a sinner to be righteous even though they're still in a sinning state. The, the Latin phrase, if I get the Latin correct, is simul peccator et justus. And that comes out of the Reformation. And it means simultaneously sinful and righteous. And it's because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to ourselves. It doesn't mean that we are made righteous in this life. It means we are declared righteous in this life. And the process of sanctification begins to move us toward practical righteousness. And in in our death and resurrection, we will be made perfectly righteous in Jesus Christ. Right now, we need to be justified. We need to be declared righteous. The law can't do that. All the law can do is reveal sin in its, glory, in its gory detail. So in the, the letters that we've had from Gracie, um, she had shin splints. She had shin splints. The second letter, she's going to try and go to the medical center. The third letter then, she went to the medical center and had the x-rays. And the x-rays revealed that she had stress fractures. Um, she could not say, I had stress fractures, but then I went to the medical center and had an x-ray and now I'm fine. Because x-rays don't heal. They only show what's there. That's what the law does. The law can reveal, but it cannot resolve. The law can reveal sin, but it cannot resolve sin. It can't purify from sin. It can expose a dead heart, but it can't give us a new heart. 
It can uh, unmask dead spirits within sinners, but it can't give a living spirit. The second thing that the law does is the law is a promise of redemption. It's a promise of the new covenant that we've, we've already talked about a little bit, and that, that's the basis for everything we believe in Christ. You know, virtually every element about the law, the moral code, the civil code, the ceremonial code, the, uh, the tabernacle with all of its details in construction and all of the contents, the, sacrifice, the sacrificial system and the sacrifices, the, the details in the sacrifices, the, the ministry of the priests, the ministry of the high priest, it all points to Jesus. It all points to who he was, how he would live, how he would die, what he would do for us. The picture of Christ in the Old Testament is so thorough and so perfect that Jesus rebuked the Jewish leaders and his own disciples for not believing. He rebuked those two men after his resurrection for being slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Why would he rebuke them? Because it was there. It was there, and they didn't see it. If you imagine standing on the edge of a chasm, looking across to the other side, wanting to get across to the other side, standing in your sin, seeing God on the other side of that chasm and wanting to cross, and there being a sign there that says, bridge coming soon, hope is coming soon. That sign is a promise. That's what the law did. What happens if you take that sign and you try and lay it across the chasm and use it as a bridge? You'll die. You'll die. I don't do heights. I'm afraid of heights. I don't like changing light bulbs in the ladder. I go to my mom's house to change light bulbs. She'll affirm this. If I can, I just reach up. I don't want to be on a ladder. I wouldn't want to be on one of these chairs. But having been to the Grand Canyon and stood at the edge and looked down, it doesn't bother me because it's so far down it doesn't even look real. Well, that depth is real. And the depth in the chasm between us and God is far greater than any picture could show. The law is a promise that redemption is coming, but the law is not the bridge. Those who try and rely on the, the law to be a bridge will die. So on the, on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law perfects no one. But obviously, we have to recognize that there are people who don't want another hand. They, they want the, the first hand to be the only hand. The, the Jews who ordered the, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus wanted their first hand to be the only hand. Their ancestors in the wilderness uh, declared that they would do what God had, had said to do. In Exodus, excuse me, Exodus 19.8 and 24.3, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In Exodus 19, they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then in Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments laid out in the first verses there. What's the very first commandment? I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of bondage in Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And after that, then God gives them a, a summary of the law from the rest of Exodus 19, or 20 into Exodus 23. 
before Moses goes up on the mountain, God gives the people kind of uh, like an index of what the law will eventually deal with. Uh, In my Bible, the headings of those sections are sundry laws because they're really not in an order. They're just given as a way of saying, until Moses comes back down from the mountain with the fullness, here's what you're to do. And then Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the fullness of the law and the testimony. And, And what happens when that takes place? When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a god. This is exactly what they had promised twice not to do. And as soon as Moses had been gone for a couple of weeks, he was up, on a, he was up for 40 days total, but it doesn't say that, that this is on day 41 or day 40. This might have just been a couple of days in. They, they got, Moses actually has to collect the gold from these people. He has to make the form, melt the gold, make it into the golden calf. The people carry it through the camp and worship it, and then they begin giving themselves over to greater and greater sin. So Moses hasn't necessarily been up on the mountain a very long time when they say, we're tired of waiting, make us a God. Psalm 106, I read it before. They despised the pleasant land. They did not believe the word. They grumbled in their hearts. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. That's talking about this moment when they despise God. God promised them a better hope. But they didn't want a better hope. They wanted a better Egypt. I'll say that again. God promised them a better hope, but they didn't want a better hope. They wanted a better Egypt. They said, why did you bring us out here? We had everything back there. Take us back. They wanted their old life of sin and suffering. I'm sorry, of of suffering and slavery. It's true, they wanted the old life of sin, but they wanted the old life of suffering and slavery except without the suffering and slavery. They didn't want the better hope. It doesn't make sense that they wanted a better Egypt, but that's clearly what they wanted. They didn't want the promised land. They didn't want the new life. So no one should have been surprised Uh, In the first century in 50 or 55 or 60 AD, when when the letter to the Hebrews arrived and they were sitting in a room, they were sitting together, however many of them were, a a few dozen perhaps at a time. And, And a pastor or an elder or maybe the messenger read the letter and then they come to this point and they said, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. Nobody in that room should have been surprised that God was setting it aside. Their own ancestors who first received it broke it before it was done being given. What, What a picture of the weakness and uselessness of the law. But there's more than the setting aside of the old. There are people who will say if you challenge their traditions, you're just trying to destroy. You're just trying to destroy our traditions and tear them down. No, there's the one hand, but there's another hand. What's what's on the other hand? Verse 19, and on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for the Levitical priests indeed became priests without an oath, but Jesus Christ with an oath, 
through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. There is a better hope, hope of rebirth, hope of regeneration, hope of reconciliation to God, hope of a new heart, a new spirit, a new life, hope of the forgiveness of sin, hope of peace with God, hope of a clean conscience. The law could do nothing to do those things. It could only serve as a sign saying, keep going, keep this, keep this up until the Lord brings the fullness of this next covenant. Keep going, keep standing here, keep waiting faithfully until the bridge is built. The better hope is a better hope because it is anchored in a better covenant which is mediated by a better priest who serves in a better priesthood. The new covenant is, is better than any way, uh, better, better in every way. The Levitical priests became priests purely by physical descent and qualifications. We talked about that. God made, made no oath for any of those men to become priests. It simply was passed down. But God made an oath that Jesus Christ would be the priest of the new covenant. That oath is a personal promise. And the personal promise is you are a priest forever. The Father affirmed the Lord Jesus audibly at his baptism. When Jesus came up out of the water, behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Couldn't miss it. A couple of years later on the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember the story, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to be transfigured. He left the other nine down at the the base of the mountain. Uh, Some people think he took Peter, James, and John with him because they were kind of the A team. I think he was taking them with him to keep them out of trouble. But he goes up on the mountain with them and he's transfigured and they see Jesus standing there in his, in his glorified state with Moses and Elijah. We don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. They knew it was Moses and Elijah. And then this happens. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Jesus says nothing. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. They fell on their faces. Jesus reassured them, and when they opened their eyes, Moses and Elijah were gone, and Jesus looked like he always had. See, Jesus has been chosen and affirmed by the oath of God, and he mediates a better covenant and gives us a better hope. It even goes beyond that. In verse 22, it says, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The words of Scripture are important. It's okay to dive into those words and notice their form and how they're used. And I want you to notice here that it doesn't say, so much the more also Jesus guarantees a better covenant, but Jesus has become the guarantee. Jesus himself is the guarantee 
of the better covenant. How does that work? Well, how is the old covenant guaranteed? How is it fulfilled? How would you receive the benefits of the old covenant? You did it through your own efforts. Deuteronomy 28, God says to the people of Israel, now if you, or now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And then Deuteronomy 28, 3 through 14 kind of summarizes those, those blessings. It is interesting, by the way, that when you look at those blessings, they are earthly and they are material. They're earthly blessings and they're material blessings. They're things like uh, children and livestock and crops and plenty of food and victory over enemies and possession of the land. So if you were a part of the covenant nation and you kept all of the commandments of God, God said, I will do these things for you. That's how the old covenant was guaranteed. That's how the old covenant was fulfilled. But the new covenant is not between God and people. It's not between God and the church. It's not between God and Christians. God did not make a covenant with you. God made a covenant with his son. And in Jesus' life of obedience to every aspect of righteousness, in Jesus' righteous death as an atoning sacrifice for sinners, in his resurrection to glory, Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the new covenant. Every aspect of the new covenant. So that, we read this in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has already blessed us with every spiritual, not earthly, blessing in the heavenly, not earthly, places. In Christ, not in Israel. The Old Covenant never says God has already blessed you with every blessing of the covenant. The blessings of the Old Covenant depended on your obedience to that covenant. Jesus kept the covenant for us. And so blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Those, those, those every spiritual blessing, blessings in the heavenly places in Christ can't even begin to be listed. There, there are some things that we know, but they are, there's so much to say. There's an, an, there's an infinity of blessings that are promised to us. So much so that Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2.9. Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. He's finishing up a phrase and a thought. And he's quoting from the Old Testament there. Uh, for our purposes, it would probably make more grammatical sense to say, all that God has prepared for those who love him are things which your eye has never seen. And your ear is never heard, and which have never entered your imagination. What's coming for you in eternity? You've never seen it. You've never heard it. You can't begin to imagine it. So you could do this. 
um, if, you have an, if you have a good imagination, take 30 minutes this afternoon, an hour, five minutes, however long, and imagine the blessings of eternity. Imagine them. Write them down. Write down three of them or five or a hundred of them. Write down as many as you can possibly think of. Write down so many that you look at them and say, I can't imagine what would be more. And everything that you write down will, will be insufficient and wrong because there's more coming. We can't begin to imagine. We can't begin to imagine. We've seen those, those uh, ultrasound videos that are just incredibly detailed of babies in the womb yawning, Sucking their, their, their tongue, or sucking their thumbs, stretching out, um, just doing the same things you see infants do. You, you think that infant has any concept at all of what's to come? It hears mom's voice, but it can't begin to imagine what that means. It hears dad's voice, but can't begin to imagine what that means. It, it's sheltered and it's held. And, and it thinks it's in, if it could think, it's in this perfect world, this perfect existence. I'm, I'm here now and doesn't understand that there is so much more to come. We can't begin to imagine what is coming. So on the one hand, as we think about bringing this home, on the one hand, the former commandment, the law with all its traditions, is set aside. It's officially canceled. It's no longer recognized as valid, which shouldn't surprise anybody, shouldn't cause any distress because it was weak and useless to achieve what God wanted. And on the other hand, a better hope has been brought in, anchored in a better covenant, mediated by a better priest who serves a better priesthood, and guaranteed by the person of Jesus Christ. Is it worth letting go of the old in order to cling to the new? Jesus said it was. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from, over, from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The treasure of Christ is worth letting go of the old, taking hold of the new. I think you probably all know the quote from Jim Elliott. He was one of five missionaries killed by uh, natives in South America about 60 years ago. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, we live in this world. We're made of, uh, of skin and bone and, and blood and and emotions and passions and we're physical and we feel the things around us and we see the snow outside and we feel the cold of it and it's so easy to fall in the way of thinking of of if I can touch it it's real if I can experience it it's real so many false doctrines have made their way into the church because people have said if you can't touch it if you can't see it if you can't experience it it doesn't exist when really what God has promised is beyond anything we can see here or imagine And so it's important as we think about what we do with this to steady our hearts before the Lord, to understand that in this this better hope, we have better hope in this better covenant. And perhaps you might want to think about 
your opportunities of sharing Christ and witnessing with other people and how would this bring come to bear in a conversation with somebody who holds to a form of religion a form of godliness but denies the the power of true godliness this is what charles spurgeon said 132 years ago in the metropolitan tabernacle in london brethren we are in the lord vitally and evidently when we fly to the lord jesus by repentance and faith and make him to be our refuge and hiding place is it so with you have you fled out of self are you trusting in the lord alone have you come to calvary and beheld your savior as the doves build their nests in the rock have you thus made your home in jesus there is no shelter for a guilty soul but in his wounded side have you come there are you in him if not oh won't you come today won't you flee to christ today won't you run to him who is your help today and beloved if you are in him then keep there you will never have a better refuge in fact there is no other no other name is given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved are you in christ is he your only confidence is his life his death and his resurrection the grounds of your hope is he himself all your salvation and all your desire if so stand fast Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us, for your graciousness to us in your word. Lord, we thank you for the men who have gone before, who have proclaimed your word, who have taught it, who have been faithful, and who have then reached behind in this relay race to us, handed us the baton. And now, Lord, we surge forward in you to serve you, to glorify you, to proclaim the gospel to this lost and dying world. And as with everything else, we have to leave the results of the gospel in your hands. We can't change anyone's hearts. We, we can't make them even aware of their sin, much less give them the confidence and the faith that Jesus Christ is a better Savior and the only Savior. But Lord, if you will give us the courage to speak the truth when we have opportunity, to be gentle and kind, but firm and clear as well. Then we trust that you will save according to your good pleasure, according to your will. Give us a passion to see those who don't know you come to know you in truth. And Lord, give us the, the passion and the earnest desire to know you better ourselves we ask, Lord, that if, if there is any way in which we are holding on to the old, that you would show us so that we can let go of it and reach forward and continue to take hold of the better hope, the better covenant, the better Savior. Because of this, we can pray with joy and contentment in you and live with joy in the midst of this dark world. So grant us your peace today as you will. Grant us the, the increase of hope that you want us to have. And fill our mouths with the gospel that we may share it with those who are in such desperate need. 
And in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.